Hi, everyone, and welcome to this What You Talking About Willis podcast. My name is Henry Willis, and I'm the Head of Humanities and Politics here at Halebury College in Melbourne, Victoria. Thank you for joining us as we discuss all things international relations, making connections between current world events and the VCE Global Politics curriculum. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Good morning, everyone. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of March, and welcome to another episode of What You're Talking About, Willis. On last week's episode, we went through China's national security as a core element of their national interest, where we covered the factors shaping, the different interpretations of the interest, and the degree to which China has achieved that interest. Today, we're going to do the same thing, but the focus will be on China's economic prosperity instead. So let's get straight into it. So in terms of factors shaping China's economic prosperity. Again, you need to know two of these factors because you need to be able to address a plural if one exists. And there's a couple of ways that you look can look at different factors shaping China's economic prosperity. Um, one easy factor to talk about could be something like the global pandemic COVID-19 is a factor shaping because in 2020, um, as a result of the pandemic and the associated lockdowns and the limitations to global trade, uh, China's economy shrunk in the first quarter of that year, which is the first time there's been a recession or a contraction in China since 1976. So that's a really simple little factor that you could talk about if you needed a second factor. COVID-19 has negatively impacted China's economic growth. We see that in the fact their economy shrank in the first quarter of uh, 2020. And then there's been a whole range of statistics which reflect that decline in economic output. Coal consumption is a third lower than the average of that time last year. Um, property sales were down 90%. Um, you know, commercial industries, stores were, were shutting, cafes and businesses. So there's lots of sort of you know economic implications of something like COVID-19. Uh, like national security, there's also the factor of ethnic and cultural diversity, which is worthy of our discussion in this space. And the reason why it might be good to overlap a factor um, with national security is that sometimes you might get a question and say, um, explain how one factor has shaped China's national interests, plural. And so there may be a need to link a single factor to more than one national interest objective. And so in this case, cultural diversity is also a key factor in relation to China's economic growth. Um, as we know, there are 55 officially recognised minority groups who live in China, particularly in the Western provinces. And that ethnic diversity, as we know, can also serve as the basis for discontent, for separatist desires, um, for, for terrorist motivations. And so while that primarily shapes China's national security, it also impacts their economic prosperity as well, because what it does is encourage Beijing to make certain policy decisions, economically speaking, about what they do to pacify these regions. And so that's why China has coined the term Go West or the Go West campaign, uh, whereby there's this real sort of focus on shifting resources and people and infrastructure um, westward so that um, you know um, ethnic minorities can access the benefits of economic growth and ultimately that's sort of designed to remove one of the um, the factors which shape discontent it doesn't necessarily overcome ethnic diversity but it certainly aims to sort of remove any kind of sort of you know resentment that these groups might hold towards the mainland and so you know economic growth can be a means of pacifying discontent and so 
culture in China is clearly shaping investment in the West. We've seen 20,000 kilometers of high-speed rail line developed to the Western provinces. Um, we've seen extraordinary GDP growth in places like Xinjiang. Um, Tibet was the fastest growing region in China in 2015. Um, and so there's been billions of dollars in investment in these particular territories as a means of pacifying the ethnic basis for discontent. So that's an interesting factor to know. Probably the other factor that is worth considering in relation to China's economic growth is their relations to foreign powers. Um, this is really, really important because ultimately trade underpins so much of China's economic growth. Um, China is the biggest exporter in the world. Um, they're commonly referred to as the world's factory. Um, they produce a massive amount of the world's goods. Um, they've recently become Europe's large, largest trading partner. Um, and in fact, there has been a massive transition over time of states moving away from the United States of America as a trading partner and towards China, where significant chunks of the global economy um, is essentially um, China is their number one trading partner. So um, trade is an important component of China's economic growth. But to have productive trade relationships, you are obviously involved in a delicate balance of power um, and delicate relationships with other countries. And we see many examples that when those um, when those relationships deteriorate or there's problems with those relationships, um, that can have negative impacts on China's economic growth. Um, recently, we've seen the US-China trade war really kick off um, where Donald Trump initially imposed 25% tariffs on over $200 billion worth of Chinese goods, um, which then in turn urged China to retaliate with their own tariffs, um, which is essentially making trade more expensive and costing both countries um, billions of dollars. There's estimates that, you know, they're both losing up to sort of say $3 billion annually um, due to the various tariffs that are being employed on their industries and on their products. And so, you know, this has um, had a detrimental impact on China's economy um, and it just highlights the importance of having productive trade relationships in terms of um, economic growth. Um, we've also very recently seen that the EU for the first time in a very long time has employed sanctions on China for their treatment of ethnic Uyghurs, um, which not only speaks to the dangers of their very pragmatic approach to national security, but it highlights how you know trade sanctions um, can have a detrimental impact on China's economic output. And so trade um, is a really key aspect for the Chinese economy to grow. Um, they're heavily dependent on having productive relationships with foreign powers. And China needs to be very careful because many of its relationships are deteriorating as a result of its fairly aggressive behavior in places like the South China Sea, um, its pragmatic pursuit of national security with Western China, um, and also some other areas as well. So. I would pick two of those factors um, to develop and unpack the sort of kinds of things that um, direct China's uh, economic prosperity. Moving on from factors shaping, you also need to know the different interpretations, ideas or a debate relating to China's economic prosperity. And the way I've chosen to frame this debate for you is this debate about the traditional views of development versus the sustainable or the non-traditional views of development. So it's continuing that narrative that we use for national security. There was a traditional way of doing things and then there's sort of like an emerging or a non-traditional way of doing things. Um, so traditional development has primarily and pragmatically been concerned with 
economic growth at all costs. Um, rapid development is often seen as the best way to expand your economic growth and empower yourself. At the same time, however, acting in a purely pragmatic um, way that encourages economic growth can have a whole range of negative consequences in other areas of life. Um, the big one is, for example, in terms of the environment where economic growth is placed as a higher priority. And as a result, China has some extraordinary environmental issues to address. Um, there are estimates that there's up to 1.6 million um, environment-related deaths in China each year as a result primarily of the poor air quality. Um, China loses hundreds of billions of dollars, maybe up to 600 or 700 billion dollars a year um, as a result of environmental devastation, sort of minimizing productivity. Um, and so clearly um, there are some problems with this traditional model of development. Um, in saying that, China's growth has been astonishing over the last 20 years. Um, they were the fastest growing large economy in the world up until 2015. Um, they achieved 15% growth in 2007, which is just staggering. And still even today, China is growing at a rate of about 6%. Um, they were the only developed economy to actually grow in 2020 as a result of the, the pandemic. So even though there was a recession in the first quarter, um, China bounced back to actually achieve positive growth, which is simply unheard of in other countries, uh, particularly other um, developed countries. So these are the, the, the pros and cons of a sort of traditional approach to development. Um, it maximizes economic output, but it tends to certainly minimize things like sustainability, the environment, um, and human rights are another big one as well, because obviously there's all sorts of accusations being leveled against China um, based on the fact that a lot of their manufacturing um, is sourced um, from slave labor type conditions. You know, there's lots of accusations of Uyghurs and other minorities um, being moved to the interior of China, um, being forced to work in factories to produce commercial goods. And so these are other things that we also need to consider about the pragmatic and not idealistic view of what development should be in China. In contrast, so that's that's a view primarily if you're held by sort of like the corporate and industrial elite, um, whose primary concern is quite narrowly economic growth. But what sort of changed for the Chinese government, um, the Communist Party, um, Xi Jinping, the Prime Minister, is this sort of need to have a more holistic view of the economy. And so this is where the idea of sustainable development has come from. In 2014, um, the Prime Minister Li Keqiang um, stated very clearly that a different kind of development is required. And Xi Jinping is saying things like, you know, we must declare war on pollution. Um, environmental preservation is the, a battle of the highest importance. So this is where he starts to securitize the environment, which suggests that there is a need to adopt a, a different model of economic growth. This is where we see massive investment in sustainable energies. Um, this is where we see potentially the slowing down of China's economic growth. So China's economic growth, although it's still very strong, is on a very sort of slow decline um, over the last sort of 10 years. Um, but that's still very, very strong. But many suggest that that slowing growth is a factor in terms of trying to promote more sustainable and long-term sort of approaches to economic growth. So China is willing to take some short-term economic losses 
um, in exchange for investing in its future, which includes primarily a very strong focus on renewable energies and, and environmental conservation. And so th th those two forces within China are in, are in constant opposition to one another. There's the pragmati pragmatic view, and then there's the more idealistic view, which it has a more long-term um, and you know a, a focus that not only benefits China, but would benefit the rest of the world as well, because certainly um, China is the largest polluter in the world. Um, and any methods or any measures they can take to sort of overcome that would certainly have uh, huge benefits for the rest of the world as well. And so that's how you discuss the different ideas about China's economic prosperity, the traditional versus the sustainable views of development. Um, and very lastly, like national security, you need to be able to evaluate whether China um, has been effective at pursuing these particular goals. Now, um, it's gonna be pretty hard for you to say that China has not been quite effective at promoting its economic prosperity. Um, the, the country has grown rapidly in the last, um, you know, really in the last 50 years. Um, as of 2020, you know, China's the second largest economy in the world, um, and many suggest it will surpass the USA um, at any time between, you know, um, 20, uh, 30 and 2050, they'll overtake the USA as the, the largest economy in the world. Um, their economy has grown by $2 trillion since the end of 2017. Um, and really the, the whole point about China growing during the pandemic um, while everyone else was in recession just clearly indicates the, the massive size and strength of the Chinese economy. So look, they've been incredibly successful, but you obviously still need to be able to hint at their limitations. And so you can talk about things like the recession in the first quarter of 2020 and how that shows that, you know, um, like all of us, China is susceptible to um, economic decline as a result of things like, say, a global pandemic. Um, you can look at things like um, the fall in the Chinese stock exchange in 2015. They called it Black Monday. Um, which suggests that there's some sort of underlying instability and, and a lack of sort of trust in, in China at the moment. Um, so, you know, there, there, there are some interesting trends. China's growth is slowing. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing and their growth is still very high. Um, but, you, you know, you can make fairly nuanced statements about how, although China has been incredibly successful at pursuing its economic prosperity, um, there really is some challenges that China faces. Um, and certainly inequality in China is an interesting one as the country becomes more affluent, um, does the gap between the, the rich and the poor increase? And so um, we need to ask if China has been successful in its growth, who has it been successful for? Uh, but ultimately you are probably gonna talk about China's economic growth in fairly um, positive terms, I would say. So that's a, a nice little overview of China's economic uh, prosperity. Um, I hope that was useful for you. So remembering just to recap, you need to address the factors that shape the interest, um, the differing ideas or interpretations of that interest, and the extent to which China has achieved those goals. I would suggest focusing on things like idealism and pragmatism as really easy ways of sort of classifying the different views on what China should do with its national interest. Pragmatically, we can grow the economy rapidly, quickly, without any kind of ideological concern for environment, human rights, um, the rights of others. Um, 
more idealistically, and I say more idealistically because still China is very pragmatic when it comes to its economy. Um, many would argue that a lot of its investment in sustainable energy, for example, is a pragmatic decision to essentially stop the economic losses that its country um, suffers as a result of the environment and to also make the country less dependent on foreign minerals and resources like coal. And so these can be considered idealistic or more idealistic pursuits, but typically I would say that these are fairly pragmatic endeavours. Okay, everyone, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Um, tune in next week where we'll talk about China's international standing and their regional relationships. Have a great day.